So good to be in God's house with you today. Can I invite you to grab a Bible if you have yours with you or if you're quicker at grabbing your neighbor's? And if you don't have one, we'll put these on the screen. I want you to go right with me to the book of Colossians. We are in a series right now. This is week three. We're trying to move through the series of uh, the book of Colossians. It's four chapters. Week three, we got to verse 12. So y'all pray. Yeah, y'all pray because Christmas is coming, and I didn't plan on preaching Colossians for Christmas, so... Hey, I want, I, the Word of God is just so alive. It's so rich. And, and my prayer for you, for all of us, as we lean into God's Word, is that, that the, the simple truth, the declaration of the unchanging eternal Word of God would just come alive in our hearts. And so whether you've been with us for this series in person or online, or whether this is your first time, I'm going to catch up to speed here with verse 12. That's where we ended last time. And, and in the last message, I shared seven ways that the Apostle Paul prays for the church, seven ways that we can pray for the church that he outlines there in the first chapter. And the last prayer that he prayed was in verse 12. And I just want to read that prayer again. He, he's praying for the church that they would always be full of joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of of light. Now, I wanted to start there because this statement that he says, Jesus has qualified you, that really becomes the springboard now for the Apostle Paul to, to launch into some of the theological issues that, were, that he needed to deal with in the church at Colossae. And I, I said in week one that the, the issues were primarily uh, Jewish legalism was one, you know, adding requirements to the gospel. It, it, we don't live in, in Jerusalem or in that era, but how many of you know it still happens today? There's a tendency to, to just kind of say, hey, come as you are. Jesus loves you. But then pretty soon we start adding a bunch of other requirements for people to be accepted by Christ. And that was what was happening in Colossae. And so he's dealing with Jewish legalism. The other thing he's dealing with is pagan mysticism. This idea of uh, of all these worldly philosophies and, and, and secular humanism and, and mysticism that was kind of creeping into the church. And what was happening is the, the Jewish legalism was really robbing the church of the message of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the message of paganism was just deforming what the image of Christ should look like in the earth. When people looked at the church of Colossae, it didn't quite look like the gospel they had first believed, and it certainly didn't look like the image of Jesus, and so the question then is, what do you do? If you just happen to live in a day and age where people have a religious mindset that wants to add on burdens and, and additions to the qualifications of salvation, what do you do if you live in an era when, when people want to just kind of have a, a smorgasbord theology of taking all of these different truths and ideas and philosophies and, and amalgamating them into to some form of what they would call Christianity. I don't know if that describes the culture to you, but it does to me. And thankfully, we're not the first ones to ask the question, what do you do? Epaphras asked that question, and he asked Paul while he was in a Roman prison. And so Paul responds with this letter to the Colossians. And he starts with this idea that Christ qualifies you. This idea becomes a foundational statement for everything he's about to say. In verse 13 and 14, Paul's going to start to explain how Jesus qualifies 
you. So if you're here today and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're just kind of investigating this thing, maybe you would say, I- I'm a believer, I don't know if I'm like all in or not. Let me just say, you picked a great week to come because I'm just going to give you the, the clear presentation that Paul gave to the Colossians of who Jesus is and what this gospel means for us. So let's look at it today. Verse 13, Paul says this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. When Jesus saves you, this verse communicates to us clearly He brings you out of something. Now, some of you, you didn't need me to tell you that this morning. How many of you could testify Jesus brought you out of some things? When he saves you, he brings you out of darkness. He brings you out of slavery. He brings you out of condemnation. And this verse says he brings you out from under the power of the devil. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just bring us out of something when he saves us. He also brings us into something. And that's the full revelation of this verse. Verse 13 says, he brought us into. Some translations say, he translated us. That was a term that was used to describe the deportation of a population from one country to another. So we see it with Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms going to Assyria and Babylon. And this was an illustration that was not lost on the people of Colossae, especially the Jews. Because history tells us that Antiochus the Great transported at least 2,000 Jews from Babylonia to Colossae. And, and they didn't, it's not like they just packed up and moved one day. I mean, they left their life as they knew it. They left their jobs as they knew it. Many of them left their family. And they were deported to a new life, a new reality, a new home, a new existence in Colossae. Now, here, here's what earthly rulers do. Earthly rulers transport the losers. But what Paul is saying is, in Christ, he transports the winners. That's When you get saved, he brings you out from under the bondage of your old life, of your old home, and he brings you into a new inheritance. I love the way that Paul described it in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says, but thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. If you can imagine, like, the, the... the gladiator type movies when you know when one nation has conquered another people they they come roll, the chariots roll back into town and the trumpets are blasting and and the banners are being waved and and everybody's out for the victory parade and then they're in chains coming behind the the emperor on his chariot or the commander of the army there is the enemy paul uses that picture of defeat of conquest and he says thanks be to god who leads us as the captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, and he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Isn't that a powerful picture? He uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of God. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Paul said, you're the smell of the earth. Tell somebody, you smell good this morning. You're here to spread the aroma of the knowledge of God. I hope I didn't just make you lie in church. He delivers us out of darkness into light, out of slavery into freedom, out of condemnation into forgiveness, out of the power of Satan, into the power of God, and into the purpose of God. So Paul's saying this is what 
Jesus did. I mean, look at the Old Testament example. The children of Israel, they come out of captivity in Egypt, but not just to be brought out, to be left as, as pilgrims in a wasteland. No, he brings them out so that he can bring them into a promised land. He has a place he's already promised them, a destination they already know they're going to before they ever cross the Red Sea, before they ever move through that moment that symbolizes salvation. God has already spoken of a destination. Now for us, the word that God spoke to us prophetically as a church for this year is wilderness. The wilderness is that place between where they came out of and what they were going into. The wilderness is the place where they learned to hear and know God's voice, where they received his commands, where they saw God provide, where they became a people, not identified by the shackles of their past, but identified by the leading of the Spirit of God through a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. God led them. The wilderness reminds us of this. I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. That's what it ought to remind you of. He leads you out to lead you in. We're going somewhere. And in verse 14, he gives two powerful words. These are great church words. He says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness, those words go together because redemption means to release a prisoner by the payment of a ransom. The ransom's been paid, the prisoner's free. Forgiveness means to cancel the debt. So Paul is trying to get these people to understand just who Jesus is. He's laying the foundation. This is who Jesus is. Christ delivered us out of darkness. He delivered us into, he translated us into the kingdom of God's own son. He paid the full ransom for our sins, but he didn't stop there. He canceled the debt. Satan has nothing on you is what he's saying. There's, there's nothing that the enemy can go into the courtroom of heaven and hold against you. The debt's been canceled. What he's saying is, you've been qualified. That's, that's the truth here. You've been qualified because of what Christ's done. You're qualified. And it's no wonder that in verse 12, he said, I'm praying that you always be full of joy. That you always be full of thankfulness. Why? Because of this truth. No matter what kind of week you've had, no matter what lies the enemy's been telling you today, grab a hold of this truth. Christ has qualified me. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. And at this point, Paul wants them to get a picture of who Jesus really is and what he can do. So his first point is simply this. Jesus is the Savior. If you're a note taker, I'm going to give you three things. The first one is Jesus is the Savior. And he's declaring that in verse 14. In whom or in Christ we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's what you need to know about Paul. If you don't know anything about uh, Paul, this apostle in the New Testament, you need to know that this guy was a brilliant scholar. I mean, th this guy was never short on words. It's not like he lacked something to say. In fact, one time he preached so long that a young teenager named Eutychus fell out the window during the sermon, fell on the floor, and died. Like, that's, that's a long sermon right there. Paul could do a lot of things I can't do, but one thing I know he couldn't do is preach three Sunday morning services. I know he couldn't do that because there's not enough hours in the day for three Sunday morning services. Paul's not short on words. And the reason I say that is because he could have written volumes from his little Roman prison. 
He could have expounded on all of the theories of, of all the people that were bringing error into the doctrine of the Colossian church. But instead, he writes this little letter, less than 2,000 words. And in this letter, he exalts Jesus above all that. And can I just say that in itself, just taking the, the letter as a whole, that in itself is a powerful message for you and I. We ought to keep in mind. In a day when everybody has endless knowledge on everything. That's, that's our reality. In a day where all of a sudden everybody is a political scientist. Everybody's a sociologist. Everybody's an epidemiologist. Everybody's a theologian. We all have degrees from YouTube University. Yeah. Majoring in Google searches. Studying TikTok videos. What do you do in an era when everywhere you turn, somebody's got an expert opinion to back up what they believe? Here's what we should do. We should do what Paul did. Make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. How about, how about if we're known most for what we believe? Let's be known for what we're for more than we are known for what we're against. And of all the things that Paul could have said, you're going to see he exalts Jesus higher than any other place in Scripture in this text. One of the errors that he was up against was called syncretism. It's just this idea of kind of sinking all these different beliefs to the faith we have in Jesus. Just, you know, whatever sounds good. Adding to your faith other beliefs, other uh, philosophies, other religious practices. It's a, a culturally crafted Christianity instead of a Christocentric faith. That's what was happening, and one of, the, one of the results of that was something called Gnosticism. But before I describe Gnosticism to you, let me just give you Paul's equation that you're going to see through the book of Colossians. Here, here's the math on this. Jesus plus nothing equals enough. That's the math. Jesus plus nothing equals enough. And so he begins to, to push back on all of these thoughts by simply declaring that, that Jesus is enough. You don't need philosophy. You don't need secular humanism. You don't need mysticism. You don't need self-help. You don't need ritualism. Jesus is enough. And what he was up against was the, the early stages of what is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis that just means knowledge. Like if your doctor gives you a prognosis... He's claiming to have some knowledge on, on what, what your issue is. So Gnosticism was on the rise. Agnostics believe you can't know anything about God and his nature. But Gnostics believe that the truth about God can only be accessed through special mystical knowledge. That's what was happening in Colossae. And, and Gnosticism begins with a couple of kind of basic premises about matter, about those things in the physical world. They believe everything spiritual is good, everything spiritual is, is holy and pure, everything physical is evil. And not only is it evil, but it's eternal. And so because matter is eternal and it's evil, they came to the conclusion that God, who is spirit, who is holy, could not have created the world, which is evil. And so instead what God did is he created emanations. That, that kind of branched out from one emanation 
to another. And, and the farther they got from the presence of God by degree, all of a sudden there was this one emanation that, that could actually handle the evil matter of earth and create the earth. But to take their thought farther, this, this emanation that's so far from God is also ignorant of God. And its ignorance of God turned into hostility toward God. So now the Gnostics think that the one who created the heavens or created the earth is actually an enemy of God. That's, that's the foundation for some of the, the belief that they had. They had kind of wrestled with the reality of how can God be holy and pure and how can the world be evil. Well, gee, God didn't create it. And the one that did create it is the enemy of God. That's their thought process. And in response to this type of thinking, Paul's going to exalt Jesus, not only as Savior, but number two, Jesus is the creator. He is the creator. Look at verse 15. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn doesn't mean birth order. It means status. It means position. The way that, like, Psalm 89, David called Solomon his firstborn, even though he wasn't born first. He's my firstborn son. Why? He has the position He's going to have the inheritance. He's going to have the throne. Jesus was not the first human created. He's uncreated. And that's going to be a point he's going to make in a moment. But that word firstborn could actually be translated in the Greek as prototype. He's the prototype of creation. Now, doesn't that sit well with Genesis when God said, let us make man in our own image? He made Man, Jesus is the prototype of creation. I love what John said about this. In John chapter 1, verse 18, John said, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus himself said in John 14, 9 to Philip, he said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So creation and the conscience of man can reveal the essence of God, but Christ reveals the nature of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I I love what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So then, Paul builds on that in Colossians 1.16, and he says, For in him all things were created. Now, if all things are created, that means all things. So he's not created. All things that are created were created by him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. That word for, interestingly enough, can also be translated because. So it it could be saying Jesus is the firstborn over all creation because in him all things were created. Now, there's so much. There's so much here. The word is so deep. There's so many things, layers, that if we understand the context of the people he was originally writing to, there's a whole lot more truth that jumps out of verse 16. I, I love I love the truths in verse 16. And so let me just give you a little bit of of the background he's writing to. These Gnostics, which literally means the intellectual ones. He's writing to these intellectual ones. And so he's using the language of Greek philosophers. 
They, they love to stand in the open forums and debate. They love to, to just go back and forth and, and with their philosophies. And So Paul uses three different prepositions in verse 16 to describe the role of Jesus in creation. And the reason that he did it is because the Greek philosophers taught that everything needed three things. Every matter needs three things. Number one, it needs a primary cause. Like, what's the plan? It needs an instrumental cause. Like, what's the power that, that makes it? And then thirdly, it needs a final cause. What's the purpose of it? So Paul's writing to these Colossians, and he's making the case for creation in Jesus. And in one verse, verse 16 here, he says, For in him all things have been made. In other words, he's saying the primary cause is Jesus. He planned it. It's in him. And then he says at the end of the verse, through him. In other words, Jesus is the instrumental cause. He's the power that made it happen. And then he says, it was for him. So Jesus is the final cause. He's saying it was in him, it was by him, it was for him. It was for his pleasure, for his purpose. And then he adds this, verse 17. This might be my favorite verse in in all of Colossians. Verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a declaration. In Jesus, everything holds together. You you know, it's amazing. I was reading uh, this week in my study that physicists are still confused about how the atom holds together. Isn't that amazing to think? In In all of our understanding, in all of our Uh, enlightenment and all of our science. See, at the nucleus of an atom, there are positively charged protons at the nucleus of an atom. And and just like uh, the the positive sides of magnets push each other apart, that's what protons do. And so physicists say that, that there's something, there's something that's keeping them together. It's mysterious, it's invisible, but it's holding them Together, based on everything we know right now about electromagnetic fields and energy, every atom should be flying apart, but they don't, and everything that's matter is made up of atoms, and they're holding together, and physicists don't know what that is that's holding that together, so they've come up with a term. You know what they call that? The thing that keeps the protons from flying apart, that keeps the atoms together, they call it the stronger force. That's... that's, That's the academic term, the stronger force. Scientists say without the stronger force holding atoms together, the only element that would exist in the universe is hydrogen. So we owe our very existence to the stronger force. Can I tell you today, if it seems like everything could or should or maybe feels like everything is falling apart in your life right now, I want to tell you there's a stronger force that holds all things together. He holds it all together. Physicists might call it a stronger force. AA meetings might call it a higher power, but I'm telling you what Paul said. His name's Jesus. He holds all things together. Paul defends the deity of Jesus to these Colossians by saying he's not only the Savior, he's the creator. He's the very image of God. Not only that, he existed before creation. He's the firstborn. He created all the things. It was his plan for his purpose, for his pleasure, and he holds it all together. 
So Paul's writing from his prison saying, I don't know what kind of theories you've got, but I'm telling you who Jesus is. Mic drop, Apostle Paul. Let me ask you just for a second before we move on. In light of all the truth that God has revealed in his word, is there an area of your life that feels like it's not being held together? Is there, is there a moment, is there an area of your life that feels like it's coming unraveled, like things are coming unglued? Because if that's the case, can I, can I encourage you towards a different kind of glue? Can I encourage you towards the one who holds all things together? The stronger force than your goodwill or your good intention or your best efforts or, or a therapy session or counseling or a medication. God can use all those things, but those are not the things that hold your world together. Jesus is. Paul's next declaration about the exaltation of Christ comes in verse 18. Look at it with me. Not only is Jesus the Savior, is Jesus the Creator, but now he's going to say Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now that word head, the Greek word, and I keep referring to the Greek because that's the language the Bible was originally written in, the New Testament anyway. That word means source of origin. It means leader. So just as in creation, verse 16, where all things were created in him, through him, and for him, it's the same with the new creation. The church is in him, through him, and for him. And so he goes on in verse 18 to say, he is, Jesus is, the beginning. That word beginning, it means originator. So the church originated in Jesus, and it operates in Jesus. That's the way this thing's supposed to work. Any church that's not centered on Jesus is not the church you're supposed to be a part of. That's a dysfunctional church. The church operates and originates in Christ. The way he said it to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 6 was this. For from him, from Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting limit, ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. He's saying it's from Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say, he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. And then he says, he's the firstborn from among the dead. Again, same word he said in in verse 15 about Jesus being the firstborn of creation. Now he says he's the firstborn among the dead. In other words, he's the prototype of the resurrection. He's not saying Jesus is the the first person to be raised from the dead. He's saying this is, in terms of his status and his position, Jesus' resurrection is absolutely most important. It goes before all else because everyone else's resurrection hinges on this one. He is the firstborn of the dead. He existed first. He conquered death first. He ascended to the right hand of the Father first. And he'll come again and rule and reign in his kingdom First, can I just say what what Paul is trying to communicate to the Colossians, and it's this. There is only one position that Jesus will occupy in your life. First. That's it. First. He's going to be Lord of all, or he's not going to be Lord at all. He will not play second to anyone. And and as they're trying to just kind of add a little Jesus and, and add a little of this and add some of this to their faith, Paul is just lifting Jesus higher and he's saying he's got to be everything in your life now now we come to the theme the last part of verse 18 this is the theme of the whole letter he says so that in everything he 
might have the supremacy. That's what Paul's driving home. Jesus has to have the supremacy. He's the Savior. He's the Creator. He's the head of the church. I want to ask the worship team to come, and I want to show you as Paul's defending the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes one final point in verse 19. you got to see this. Verse 19, Paul uses a word that resonates with the Gnostics. It's a word, pleroma is the word. And and what it meant is the, the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. See, they had this idea that there, there was divine power and there were attributes in Jesus, and they loved those. But they also thought that they had this knowledge over here that they gained through mystical practices or, or, or revelations of angels or, or, or some other experience. And so to have the pleroma was to have the full sum total of all of the knowledge about God. And those that stood at the top, of the intellectual ones, the ones that puffed out their chest. They're the ones that said, we've now reached a stage where we have the full sum total of the knowledge of God. Now, you got to understand this about the Roman Empire. They didn't really care what God you worshipped, how many gods you worshipped. All they cared about is that you make sure you don't say that your God is the only God, because that would be offensive to everybody else, and don't dare say that your God is better than anybody else's God. Doesn't that sound like our world today? Our political, correct, socially acceptable, watered-down gospel? I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's hard to live in that reality when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet, the Colossians and us are living in a world where people say, you can believe what you want to believe. We have tolerance for anything, anybody, unless you say your belief is the right one. And that maybe your belief is better than anyone else's. Well, we won't tolerate that. We won't tolerate if you stand for an absolute truth. So Paul is writing to people that live in a context that they're willing to give Jesus prominence. They're just not willing to give him preeminence. They weren't denying Jesus. They were dethroning him. There's a lot of people living in that reality. I like Jesus. Oh, yeah, I'm all for it. He's great. Not denying Jesus, but dethroning him. And to those people, Paul speaks of the pleroma. That word pleroma is translated fullness. You want to have it all? You you want to have the the intellectualism? You want to have the knowledge? You want to be at the, the top of the spiritual ladder? Here it is, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all. His fullness, His pleroma, dwell in Him. In this short little letter, Paul's going to use that word eight times to drive home the fact that Jesus is the fullness of God. He's speaking to them on their level. He's speaking their language. But he's not debating tit for tat over their issues. He's exalting Jesus Christ above all of it. Jesus is the sum total of all the divine power and attributes of God. They dwell in Him. Now why? Why would God actually let His glory dwell in some created being? Well, certainly He wouldn't. And yet Paul says God was pleased to have His fullness dwell in Christ because ultimately, Paul's argument is not just that Jesus is Savior 
or that Jesus is the creator, or that Jesus is the head of the church. What Paul is ultimately saying is Jesus is God. That's what you need to know, Epaphras. That's what they need to come back to center on. Jesus is God. Don't look any farther. That's why he says in Colossians 2, 9, and this might be my favorite verse too. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So can I just say to you today, whether you're a a nominal believer, someone that served the Lord all your life, or, or someone that hasn't even really bought in altogether on faith, I want you to hear me clearly. The question today is not, is Jesus important to you? I'm going to assume because you just listened to the last 30 minutes of me preaching that Jesus is important to you. I'm going to give you that. That's not the question. The question is not, is Jesus number one on your list of priorities? Because Jesus does not want to be number one on your list of priorities. Jesus wants to be the page that your list of priorities are written on. Jesus wants to be the pen that you write your list of priorities. He's the foundation. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. The question is not, is Jesus important to you? The real question is, is he your life? Is he your life? Is he your God? That's why Paul says later in, in Colossians 3 verse 4, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The ones who have the hope of appearing with him in glory are those who say, Christ is my life. He's the Savior. He's the Creator. He's the head of the church. He's the fullness of God. But is he your life? So I've asked this worship team to come back up here and And in just a moment, they're going to sing the song that we were singing earlier. Such a fitting song that just declares who Jesus is. And I want to to give you an opportunity to just respond to what the Spirit of God is revealing through His Word today. Would you stand with me all over this room? As they get ready to sing this song, I want to give you an opportunity to respond in a couple of ways. First of all, I want to ask some of our, our prayer team if you would just come. And if I could have a few uh, prayer warriors just stand here in the front. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I, I, I like Jesus, I love Jesus, I don't deny Jesus, but maybe in the course of this message, the, the realization has come to your heart that maybe you've dethroned Jesus. He's something, but maybe he hasn't been everything. If that's you today, I want to challenge you to, to just step out from where you are and to move to the front of this sanctuary. Allow one of these prayer partners, to just pray with you. Sometimes we we just need to make an outward expression, a public declaration to say, Jesus, I'm putting you first in my life. But let me me go past that because we, we call people to the altar every Sunday. And one of the reasons we do that is because we believe in the power of agreement. We, we believe that God can move in and through your life through a moment of shared faith. And this prayer team They're praying for you. They're anticipating this moment in our services. They're believing God's going to use them and their faith to move in your life. So if you want prayer for any need, this is your moment. This is your time to just come to the altar. 
whether you're moving or standing, I, I want us to just begin to sing this song as a response to the Lord. It declares who Jesus is. And as we sing this song, I want to just invite you to just shift your heart to putting Jesus right back on the throne of his life. As we sing this out, who is the king of glory? Seated in high in the heavens, it's Jesus alone. Come on, let's seek him for a few moments.